0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we'll hear about storytelling and media projects that confront the complexities of life in Appalachia. Like a film about returning home, but you find that the place you remember has changed.
1: you ever looked around this town?
2: The manufacturing, drying up left and right. What's going on?
0: They closed us down and a play about the things that divide us. God, in this world where I know that you love me, I don't feel loved. Where I know I'm a being worthy of love, I feel so scared. We'll also hear about a TV show that tells the story of women in recovery.
3: These women who are sitting behind me have proved over and over again, we do recover. I give to you the 2021 class of Her Hope Haven, Those
0: stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. If I asked you to recall a book or a movie that depicts the true experiences of life here in Appalachia, what comes to mind? There are plenty of great writers and storytellers here, but they don't often get the attention they deserve. Why is that? Well, today we're listening back to some stories we've aired in the past about books, plays, and films that go beyond stereotypes. We begin in Harlan County, Kentucky. A local theater company called Higher Ground decided to make a play about 2020. For the cast, that meant coming to terms with a difficult year, from COVID-19 to police violence and far-right extremism. When the ensemble decided to cover the summer's Black Lives Matter protests, lots of feelings came up. Katie Myers spoke with cast members and creators on how they reckoned with race, religion, and community
4: through art. Just a little more than one year ago, the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor sparked months of public outcry. People took to the streets, even in small towns in Kentucky, like Harlan.
1: We protested in Harlan to show that allies exist in these mountains, that our friends are tired and worried that they might be next. This isn't the
4: protest. It's a play created by Harlan County community members through a theater company called Higher Ground. Every year, Higher Ground co-creates a production with its ensemble. This year, the play was called Shift Change. Director Keith McGill said the intention was to allow cast members to process the year's events.
5: And this year was, we need to talk about COVID. We need to talk about how politics is sort of putting a space in between people. We need to talk about uh, racism and Black Lives Matter and all these important issues.
4: To McGill, who is Black, rehearsal was a space to work out misunderstandings.
5: We brought in uh, the African-American cast members and said, how are you feeling about what's happening? We brought in the white cast members and they said, I don't know what to do, and we talked about it.
4: Cast member Kira Higgins, for instance, was deeply affected by the death of George Floyd. Higgins played Myra, a character much like Kira herself, a young Black woman who's hungry for justice. Moments in the play come from Higgins' own experience after she heard about Floyd's death.
3: Yeah, a little bit after that, I just remember sitting in the living room. I was by myself, and I just had a feeling to get on my hands and knees, and I started praying, and the whole prayer was about, God, in this world where I know that you
0: love me, I don't feel loved. Where I know I'm a being worthy of love, I feel so scared.
4: The ensemble wanted to reflect the full spectrum of Harlan politics, so they didn't shy away from the hard stuff. Some cast members' relatives went to the Capitol during January's far-right insurrection. In the play, a character named Hank did the same. This is Hank and Mona, his black neighbor.
5: I guess there's a lot of hate on both sides.
6: Hank, I'm just gonna say this. There's some good
5: in you.
4: Mona acts nice about it, But afterwards... To hell with that man.
5: Whispering in my ear like he understands
4: where I'm coming from. Some white cast members, according to Black cast members, had trouble with that part. They couldn't believe that Mona wouldn't tell Hank the truth. But, Higgins says, it made everyone aware of how unsafe many Black folks felt in the community during that time. And still feel. For shift change, this was the work to reach out and be brave and try to understand. There has to be a shift. Lord, please let there be a shift.
7: I believe I might be ready for a shift.
4: That's what the cast agreed on, a relentless yearning to come into relationship with one another, even if they're not there quite yet. A video release of Shift Change is scheduled for the late summer. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers.
0: Katie originally reported that story for the
4: Ohio Valley Resource series, Black Lives
0: in Red States. The resource is a journalism collaborative made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Hi. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of books out there trying to describe and explain the intricacies of Appalachia. Sometimes the authors get it right, but other times the books spark major controversy. Think Hillbilly Elegy. Well, there's another new book, but stick with me here. It offers an insightful, facts-based look at eastern Kentucky. It looks at how past and current events might play into the future of the region. The book is called Twilight and Hazard and Appalachian Reckoning, written by Alan Mayman. Maiman is an award-winning journalist who lived in and reported on Eastern Kentucky in the early 2000s. I asked him to come on the show to talk about the book. Can you actually just dive into telling us a little bit more about how you ended up in Eastern Kentucky, Um, I think the story you shared in the book was so compelling. Um, You had been spending time in Berlin as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And you didn't want to come back to the East Coast, which was kind of your home. You wanted to go somewhere foreign to you in the U.S. And what really jumped out to me, you interviewed in Kentucky for the newspaper there. And the editor said, quote, most people in Louisville have never been to eastern Kentucky and have no idea what's happening there. We would want you to cover the area like a foreign correspondent
8: would. Yeah, those words resonated with me too at the time and now 20 years onward uh, just as much. Um, as, you, as you stated, I was living in uh, Berlin, Germany and, and working as a news assistant in the New York Times' Berlin bureau. And I thought, you know what, maybe I would experience less of this culture shock that expats talk about if I went to a place where I had absolutely no connections to, no familiarity with at all. And just as good fortune would have it, around the time I was formulating this idea, I saw a job opening in the Hazard Bureau of the Louisville Courier-Journal, and it just seemed like a, a perfect fit for me where I could go to a place that would, as a journalist, challenge me just as much as my work in in Germany had. So um, I moved from Berlin, Germany, to Hazard, Kentucky, which, uh, you know, who who hasn't made that move before, right?
0: (laughs) And tell us a little bit about your career trajectory there and how long you were there and some of your reporting, which was nominated for some very huge awards, and then kind of what led you to writing this book.
8: Well, the Eastern Kentucky Bureau of the Courier-Journal is something of a fabled bureau. So many great reporters had passed through that bureau and done some wonderful work, especially with regards to the coal industry. So when I took the job, I knew that coal mining was going to be a a large part of of the beat. Um, What I didn't realize, as I was literally still unpacking my bags in 2001, was that a a massive opioid epidemic was going to sweep over the region and the impact that that would have on on so many communities in eastern Kentucky. So this book is really a reflection on the the five years that I spent uh, in eastern Kentucky, where the events of that time just were era-defining in many ways. And I wanted to really draw a line between the events that took place back then and where we are today, not just in the region of Eastern Kentucky, but in the nation as a whole. So it was um, an incredible experience covering Eastern Kentucky for those years. The opioid epidemic was a heartbreaking story to cover. The stories of environmental degradation were equally heartbreaking. The political violence that stemmed from the opioid epidemic and, and, and so on. There was never a moment while I was there that I didn't feel challenged and feel really a large sense of responsibility to tell the stories of this region in the fullest possible way, keeping in mind what my, that editor had told me when I took the job, that I was a foreign correspondent and I needed to convey what was happening in, in these communities to an audience that was four hours away and just not familiar with, with the systems and structures of eastern Kentucky.
0: There has been a lot of books and just coverage on Appalachia recently and for forever that has been oftentimes stereotyping the region in a certain way um, and especially most recently looking at Appalachia's like Trump country Um, and I know that that can rub a lot of people the wrong way who actually live here and feel that they're misrepresented. Um, You make the case that your book is different and that you're taking a more nuanced look at what's going on. Can you kind of make that case for our listeners?
8: Yeah, well, Central Appalachia and and Eastern Kentucky in particular is Trump country. I th- that that is a fact, and I think what gets uh, missed and what gets uh, misstated is the why of that. The why is it Trump country? How did this happen? What are the historical forces at play that have resulted in in Eastern Kentucky becoming one of, if not the reddest uh, area in the country, I think that's what my book does. It it drills deeper into some of the notions that people have, and it may, in some cases, debunk conventional wisdom, but in other cases, it may validate what people have thought, but present it in a way that I believe provides the why to to certain uh, questions and. Why is that important? Because really the book at the end of the day, I hope, is forward thinking. What we're really trying to talk about now, I hope, is the idea of a just transition from a coal-based economy into uh, something else. Recognition that the people of the region and not the coal in the region are the area's biggest natural resource. So we got to lay some things out on the table, maybe state some uncomfortable truths, But that's the only way we're going to have the reckoning that we need to have.
0: Now, Alan, I believe you have a passage of your book that you wanted to share with us. I'm wondering if you might read that for us and and set it up with some context.
8: Sure. I'm going to read a passage about a meeting I had soon after I arrived in Hazard with uh, then-Mayor Bill Gorman, who had been uh, mayor for quite some time and was a very colorful character. And the occasion of my meeting was that I had just written one of my first stories for the Courier Journal. And it was about Mayor Gorman's cousin, Vernon, who um, he lived at one of the highest points in Hazard, was a, an eccentric fellow. At any rate, Mayor Gorman saw this article that I had quoted uh, Vernon Cooper in and, and summoned me to his office for a meeting. <clears throat> when I entered his office, Gorman, A squat, well-put-together man who spoke like he had a lungful of sausage gravy and cigar smoke had a copy of the Courier-Journal splayed out across his desk. My cousin Vernon sure is a character, ain't he? Gorman asked me with a hearty laugh. Oh yes, Vernon was a character, all right, but I wasn't sure I should say as much. The mayor asked me about my background and how I came to take the hazard job. I said I grew up in Philadelphia, and he told me that he had traveled nearly everywhere in the country, but had liked few places as well as Philadelphia. Prominently displayed in Gorman's office was a framed photo of him with former President Bill Clinton, who had visited Hazard a year earlier as part of a tour of impoverished America. While in Hazard, Clinton spoke of the need to defeat poverty by encouraging private investment in the distressed region. There was also a photo of Gorman with Robert F. Kennedy, who famously came to the area in 1968 for the same reason. In the 32 years between those visits, poverty appeared to be keeping the upper hand. Also in Gorman's office was a picture of the mayor with country singer Glenn Rhinestone Cowboy Campbell, who had befriended the mayor's coal operator brother after after performing a free concert in Hazard in the early 1980s. I had done my due diligence by reading a couple of articles about the mayor before my visit, He had his hands in every pot, banking, insurance, coal, real estate, and media, the last of which he took an interest in after seeing one too many negative portrayals of eastern Kentucky in the national news. The way that legendary Charles Kuralt depicted eastern Kentucky in the 1964 CBS special Christmas in Appalachia upset Gorman. By the time of the airing of the 1968 public television documentary Appalachia, Rich Land, Poor People, Gorman could no longer countenance seeing only helpless, jobless, toothless Eastern Kentuckians flashing across his screen. He wanted to help control the narrative, so in 1969 he lobbied the Federal Communications Commission to establish a network affiliate in Hazard. That station eventually became WYMT, We're Your Mountain Television, a CBS affiliate that still features local news broadcasts throughout the day. The mayor ended our meeting on a positive note telling me to keep an eye out for what he expected would be an influx of new business to the area. He mentioned Sykes Enterprises as one of the companies that had answered Bill Clinton's call to action by setting up two technical assistance call centers in the region. Do us right, Gorman said shortly before our meeting ended. I didn't know whether to interpret it as an order or a threat. Coming from the mouth of the affable Gorman, the words didn't sound at all malevolent, and as it turned out, I would hear this phrase or some variation of it many times in the coming years from people of all walks of life. And I came to understand it not as a warning, but as a plea. Do right by us because we have been wronged too many times before.
0: That was journalist and author Alan Mayman speaking about his new book, Twilight and Hazard and Appalachian Reckoning. You can find it on bookshelves or wherever you buy books. When we come back, we'll hear from a film director who was told growing up that she had to get out of Appalachia
9: if she wanted to make art and succeed. That's not entirely true because I had to actually go back to that town for those things to happen.
0: We'll talk with filmmaker Nicole Regal, who made a film based on her hometown in Ohio. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back.
10: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: When Nicole Regal was growing up in Appalachian, Ohio, she couldn't wait to get out. But as an adult writer and film director, the place drew her back, and she found herself reconnecting with her town and community in unexpected ways. The result is a film called Holler. Again, here's Katie Myers, who spoke with the filmmaker about leaving and returning to your small hometown.
4: Holler is an Appalachian coming of age film about Ruth, who works in a scrapyard in a small working class town in southeast Ohio. In this scene, Ruth learns that the local factory is shutting down.
2: you ever looked around this town? The manufacturing, drying up left and right. What's going on?
4: They closed us down.
2: You get a
9: front row seat to how the world works.
4: I sat down with filmmaker Nicole Regal to talk about why this was such a meaningful story for her. I really wanted to tell a story about
9: um, that People could relate to and, and connect to, especially um, uh, people from you know Southeast Ohio, people from from Appalachia, um, and it was really important to me that someone like myself be behind the camera and and tell the story. So, what was it like returning there? Um, it was like no other experience I'll ever have because while I was filming and I was at work, I would run into people that I knew or that I, who I know now. And, and I remember one time we were filming in uh, the factory, and I would just hear someone say, oh, hey, Nicole, and I went to high school with them. It seems like the characters must have been really personal to you. I mean, Ruth is very much rooted in, in myself and has a lot of my lived
4: experience. Ruth is a bit of a rebel, getting into trouble at school and making money in all kinds of extra-legal ways. Like Regal once was, Ruth is also torn between the possibilities of a college education and devotion to her family and community. Like my own story, giving herself permission to have more and to do more
9: and not view um, leaving or any kind of success that you have or wanting more for yourself as a betrayal.
4: But Regal also wanted to show other perspectives. Many characters, like Ruth's brother, belong where they are. Even though life is hard, they're proud of where they're from.
11: Oh my God. What? You just got into college.
4: I have a life here.
11: That's some life here, huh?
4: Regal was often told by her elders that she had to leave in order to be successful. It's kind of like
9: the grass is greener. Everything's better. Everyone's better. And this town sucks. And there's nothing here. That's not entirely true because I had to actually go back to that town for those things to happen. So dissect that how you will.
4: (laughs) Maybe you can go home again, Regal said. Or maybe to make good art, you kind of have to, even if it's scary. It's a place that totally inspires me today.
9: Everything I've ever written or made, from photography to film to writing, everything, I've, I've been totally inspired by. Appalachia in such a, a, a beautiful way. I think that a lot of what I make is always sort of a, a poem to um, the women uh, from Appalachia. So I don't, I don't know that now as a, a grown woman I, I agree with
6: 18-year-old Nicole.
4: <laughs> Nicole Regal wrote and directed the film Hauler. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. Katie originally reported that story for the Ohio Valley Resource.
0: Author Bonnie Proudfoot began working on her new novel, Goshen Road, nearly 25 years ago. But she said she had to get older before she had the confidence to finish it. The story follows two teenage sisters growing up in the 60s in West Virginia. Proudfoot sat down with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas to talk about the novel.
10: So describe the the, the name of the book is Goshen Road. Uh, Describe the book for me.
1: Um, so it's it's what they call a, a novel in linked narratives, which means that each chapter is almost has the drama and tension of a short story, and yet the same characters circle around through all the chapters and it progresses forward in time. And it really, at the heart of it, is the story of two women who come to terms with who they really are. And uh, they can look the world squarely in the eyes on their own terms. They needed to go through a lot. Uh,
10: so, what what genre would you put this in?
1: So, there is a whole. Uh, it's an. It is a novel because it has a trajectory and it goes forward in time. But there is a whole genre um, and of linked narratives. And there, um Well, I, I'm thinking more
10: basic. I mean, would you? Is this coming of age? Is this? Oh, yeah. yeah good I, question. I mean, yeah, I mean that sort of genre.
1: You could see it as a, Appalachian fiction is. I think a good way to characterize it, just to start, Um, and and coming of age and uh, uh, female-centered fiction, right? Although not all the chapters are written from the point of view of uh, the female characters. I was intrigued
10: um, on the the back cover and I assume the the, the – uh, university press people wrote the the basic description, that sort of thing. But the, the, I tripped over the word, and I'm sure you uh, you can guess which one I'm talking about, elegiac. Yeah. Um, and I, I literally had to look it up. I, that's not a word I'm familiar with because it re, re, pertains to an elegy.
1: Right. How How does that pertain to your book? I think that it harks back to a time past. And so in... In that, this book covers a time period of uh, 1967 to 1992. Things have gotten more complicated, you know, for Appalachia. And uh, regionally, people are confronted with, I would say, even more stressful circumstances in life in, in contemporary times. This harks back to the past when there was still a vestige of, like, cultural inheritance that uh, people, you know, people did canning, they went hunting, this, they, they knew how to make some form of a living off of the land, and um, not everything was material. They traded for things. It's an elegy a little bit in that regard. Okay. Things have gotten harder, economically speaking, since that novel.
10: I don't think you said specifically where this is set. I mean, it's fictional. I get that. I'm guessing northern West Virginia right on the border with Pennsylvania would be.
1: You know, I didn't exactly want to say the county. But, it. uh, you know, if you can. I lived in Wetzel County. You can make any kind of assumption. I also lived in Fairmont. And um, someone asked me, is Fairchance Fairmont? And my answer is, no, it's actually smaller.
10: Explain to me the reference of Goshen, the land of Goshen, and for Goshen
1: Road. It's from the Old Testament, right? And if you drive up Route 79 <laughs> from Fairmont to Morgantown, halfway between Fairmont and Morgantown is the sign, it's an exit sign, it says Goshen Road. Okay. And as almost as soon as I started working, as I read, I wrote more and more about these same characters, and they all lived together, and they was so tied to the place. And there's, the place itself figures largely in the book. I think it's kind of a spiritual force, uh, not necessarily always an easy force to grapple with. But um, you know, it is the place of their inheritance. It is the place that they have to deal with. It's. It's something that everybody who loves West Virginia knows deep down in their hearts. If the the land isn't always going to reward you in the way that you think it should possibly, you can't tame it. And it's gorgeous. There's that – you're drawn to stay there and it's a price you pay as well as a great blessing.
10: Last question, but uh, what do you hope your readers take away uh, from reading the book, what what what, what do you want them to, to feel and think afterwards?
1: I want them to feel like they understand folks who live in rural um, uh, sections of the country, not even only West Virginia, not only Appalachian, but possibly Appalachian, how much family means, how much the land itself means, and how much they rely on each other in ways that sustain them even if times are rough.
0: Bonnie Proudfoot's Goshen Road is now available. It was long listed for the 2021 Penn Hemingway Award for the Best Debut Novel.
6: 2021
0: is the deadliest year yet for gun violence in America, and we're seeing this play out in West Virginia's capital city. Recently, a group gathered at a local park in downtown Charleston, West Virginia, to raise awareness about the problem. Kyle Vass was there and brought back this story.
11: Oversized pictures of 15 young people line the stage at the Riverfront Amphitheater in Charleston, Each of the pictures has the person's name and a date on it, the day they were killed in a shooting.
6: We are out here for gun violence awareness prevention.
11: Charleston City Councilwoman Deanna McKinney has hosted the event every year since 2014. That's the year she lost her own son, Tymel McKinney, to gun violence. She says it's a problem that's only gotten worse since he was killed.
6: We're not having any discussions about it. You know, after the funeral, there's not a mention of it again. And I think that's the problem we forget, and that's why I have pictures out here with names and the dates so we don't forget.
11: India Frith is McKinney's niece and a volunteer for the event. Frith says she recognizes a lot of faces in the pictures in front of the stage.
3: I lost my cousin Tamel, um, my god sister Chastenay Joseph. I lost some friends I went to school with, Treyquan Gibson, KJ. Um, Nathaniel Lee, Spivey, so, you Frith,
11: know. who's 20, says in her short <laughs> life, she's already been to several funerals for young people who've been killed by guns in the city. Do you want to stay in West Virginia?
3: virtue wise no, I wouldn't. Um, just because, you know, the memories
0: here, you know, people that I've lost.
11: Frith says she wishes she could have had a normal childhood. As a kid, she rarely went outside to play, And she says she always had to figure out if people would pose a risk to her before hanging out with them.
0: I watch who's around me because, you know, like just hearing some of their stories about how some of these, you know, kids were killed. One of them, he was killed by some of his friends. I feel like I have to keep looking over my shoulder. Then, you know, I'll be like, okay, like I best is I think it's best if we not, you know, hang out.
11: The stress of worrying about getting shot weighs heavy on a lot of young people, according to Colleen Moran. Moran is a child psychologist for Harmony Health in Charleston.
3: For most of us, it would be a once-in-a-lifetime event. For these kids, they expect to hear it nightly. There are kids that come into therapy and you say, so tell me some good things that are going on. And the child looks at you and say, we didn't hear any gunshots last night.
11: Moran worked on Charleston's west side as a psychologist at Mary C. Snow, a majority black elementary school. She says the fear of gun violence is especially strong there.
3: There was one individual with whom I worked who was having a very difficult day at school that day, so they brought the child to me, come to find out that the child had been up most of the night because the house that they were staying in had been shot at for the third time. That kind of trauma is extremely difficult for children to deal with because they never feel safe in the one place that they ought to feel the safest, their home.
11: She adds that it's not unusual for people living in constant fear of gun violence to seem emotionless or even detached when describing what they've experienced.
3: That's self-preservation. Because if you fully felt the loss and the impact of every single victim of gun violence, you would not be able to function.
11: As for the event, very few people turned out to remember those whose faces lined the stage. There were more pictures of victims than people in the crowd. McKinney says she's disappointed in the turnout.
6: It's really hard, especially when the community don't participate, the community don't get involved. And it shouldn't take you to lose someone to get involved. Or when you lose someone, you're looking for all the support and all these people to value around you. You know, we're supposed to be there for each other at all times.
11: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Vass.
0: State is home to a lot of older folks. More than 20% of the state's population is over 65. And we're seeing signs of a crisis in care. While our average age is going up, the number of younger workers is going down. And that's a challenge for senior care facilities and home care companies. In the new episode of Us and Them, host Trey K looks at the care continuum. Here's an excerpt from the episode called Who's Going to Take Care of Mama?
7: Many companies are helping seniors age in place.
5: I saw there was an opportunity to do some things in geriatric care. Eric Hicks is a franchise owner of Right at Home. He started up in 2005. I looked at the demographics and I said, heck, there's going to be a growth in the number of elderly people coming down the pike as we move forward, and I'd like to figure out a way to try to capitalize on that. Eric spent more than a decade in the industry
7: and has tapped into what is now the preferred option for more and more seniors. The government and medical community are behind this model. Eric saw the shift toward in-home care in the mid-1990s as a way to hold down long-term costs.
5: The whole dynamics changed. It was driven basically by insurance companies because they wanted to get people to the lower-cost setting so it would cost them less money. And same thing for Medicare and everything else, they want to get people to a lower cost setting. Prior to the 90s, people might stay in a hospital many times for two or three weeks. Well, very seldom do you ever see somebody stay in a hospital for two or three weeks now. What they do is they'll go and have their, whatever they need done at acute care center. As soon as they're stabilized and their vitals are okay, they're sent to a lower cost setting.
7: Dozens of home healthcare agencies in West Virginia serve an expanding base of elderly clients. Since Eric started up his company, it has become one of the largest agencies in the state. It serves clients in eight counties, employs more than 400 caregivers, and 25 administrative staff. Still, Eric says West Virginia's home care industry is in a panic, trying to meet the overwhelming need of an aging population. As the state sees a historic increase in its elderly population, it's losing its younger workers. This is due in part to an ongoing exodus of young people from the state. And the future is not looking too bright either. From 2010 to 2018, there were more deaths than births in West Virginia. Eric calls this an acute situation.
5: We just don't have enough people to provide the care that is needed to allow these people to remain in place and age at home. We don't have enough people, and then some of the people we do, this is not necessarily the profession that they want to get into. Granted, this is not something that that pays a lot of money, but it comes from the heart. And we are looking for people that really have a passion for caring and have a kind, caring attitude and want to help out out, um, other people in this capacity. And we just don't have enough people in our state to meet the demand for that, and we need to look at bringing in other people.
7: Actually, West Virginia has a history of that. Our mining industry brought people in from Europe, from various countries to come and, and staff the need. You're smiling as I'm saying that, mm-hmm. but. Do you think that's something that maybe people in the state might have to consider?
5: I I think it's something we need to do and not just consider. I think we need to make it happen. And I've compared it to to your analogy just many times, is that early in the 1900s, late 1800s, we had many people that came here from um, Eastern Europe to work in our coal mines. They worked in coal camps in southern West Virginia, and then they branched off and did other things after that. We can do some of that with health care right now where we don't have enough people to provide that care uh, or want to do that work, we can bring in people who would welcome that. Now is the time, is the best time ever for people to actually listen to what I'm saying because people understand that losing population is not a good thing and and I think people understand that we need to diversify. we've got to change the way we think here and we've got to open our borders and be more inviting to different people, people of different races, you know, black and brown people, people from other countries. That's what's going to make us grow. That's how we're going to be diverse. And that's also going to make people want to live here because people want diversity overall. And if we can make ourselves more accepting and open to that, I think that in and of itself will make people want to relocate or locate here. And now is the time for us to make that happen.
0: We've been listening to an excerpt from the latest Us and Them episode, Who's Going to Take Care of Mama? You can hear the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts or online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Claude Worthington-Benedum Foundation. Dopesick is a new series streaming on Hulu. It details the rise of prescription opioids, namely Oxycontin, and the wreckage it's caused in Appalachia and across the nation. West Virginia Public Broadcasting health reporter June Leffler spoke with Beth Macy, who helped create the show and wrote the book it's based on.
2: So this series is set in Appalachia. You are from Virginia yourself. I'm wondering, when you were working on the series with people that aren't from the region when did you tell your colleagues that there were certain ways that you wanted the region to be portrayed?
6: You know, I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, which is about a quarter of a million people in, in the Roanoke Valley. And it's very different from a small town in far southwest Virginia. And that's where some of the first people fought back against Purdue and you see them portrayed. So one of the things I I uh, wanted to do was to to make sure that the people – in the writer's room, got to meet these people, and we had to do it on Zoom. But Danny and I, the showrunner, Danny Strong and I, we interviewed Sister Beth Davies, the drug counselor who fights back. We interviewed Dr. Van Z from the doctor from St. Charles, Virginia, who fights back and is the first to call Purdue on the phone and say, Hey, this drug is way more addictive than less than 1%. We got Robert, uh, Robert Geith who's a novelist from Eastern Kentucky, who's done a lot of work around the opioid crisis. We got him in the room to tell us, you know, to make sure the dialogue was right and to really portray, uh, help us portray the small town aspect that I wasn't as familiar with, um, you know, living outside of the edge of Appalachia as I do.
2: And you made a point of this being filmed in Virginia.
6: And it, uh, it ultimately wasn't up to me, but, um, it was up to Danny and the higher ups at Disney and Hulu. But before he, you know, he left to to look at locations in North Carolina and Virginia, and I think Georgia was wanting to be a setting too. I just make this plea that I felt like um, if there was any, uh, you know, sort of secondary economic benefit to be had that Virginia deserved to have it because Southwest Virginia was one of the areas that was really targeted hard at the beginning.
2: The Sackler family has been taken to court um, for their lies um, and their role in the opioid epidemic. They've went through their bankruptcy case and will be reaching a settlement. Um, how do you feel about all that?
6: The Sacklers are giving up the company and they're giving up $4.5 of their wealth But by the time they pay it out over nine years, um, uh, many experts believe that they'll be just as rich then, if not richer than they are right now. Nobody's going to jail. Nobody's admitting that they did anything wrong. Uh, No Sackler is saying they're sorry. In fact, when asked uh, in court recently, Richard Sackler had no idea how many people had died from opioids. Took no responsibilities, and um, I tell you, if you are uh, one of the family members of all those folks who died, more than a half million, more than two million people addicted, you're not very happy with that statement. And a lot of people think the Department of Justice should go after the Sacklers criminally, and I, I, I quite agree.
2: And even if justice wasn't served in the Sackler case, in your opinion. How optimistic are you that the settlement money will go towards programming and any initiatives to actually solve the problems of the opioid crisis?
6: Well, I'm pretty discouraged in places in Appalachia, to be honest. I'm very discouraged by the fact that West Virginia has basically outlawed needle exchange at a time when Charleston, West Virginia, has the highest or most concerning HIV rate in the nation. So we need for that money to go to, uh, on the ground groups that are employing evidence based practices. We know that people who visit needle exchanges for sterile needles are five times more likely to enter treatment. But if we don't have, uh, people on the ground being listened to, uh, for their expertise, I'm thinking of the group Thor, who was, is doing wonderful work in Charleston and whose operations have been, um, you know very much criticized they need our support uh because they're doing the work that not a lot of people want to do and um we continue to have a really high treatment gap in the nation it's 88% which means that only 12% of people with OUD have received access to care in the past year that that's that's just that's embarrassing frankly we we can do better we know how to do better We need more walk-in clinics like um, Huntington, uh, West Virginia, has a great um, uh, treatment uh, modality called PROACT, and they work closely with the homeless shelter to make sure that anybody can walk in and get services. Um, We need to be doing that more than turning people away because anything that gets people into care is going to be one step uh, toward them them not dying of this lethal fentanyl that seems to be everywhere on the streets these days.
0: That was Beth Macy speaking with June Luffler. Their conversation was part of Appalachia Health News, which is sponsored by Marshall Health and Charleston Area Medical Center. Earlier this year, we aired a story that featured a young woman named Ashley Ellis.
12: Her Hope Haven is similar to what I have experienced in my recovery. I don't care to tell my story. I don't care if it's out there. I think that helps people.
0: Ashley Ellis passed away a few
12: weeks ago. Today, we'll listen
0: back to her story about the project she helped get going, a TV show called Her Hope Haven about the opioid crisis. It's now in the pilot phase. The show explores the opioid crisis from the point of view of people who are inside the recovery process. It's a fictional series, but the stories are based on the real life experiences of those who've come through the process themselves, including Ellis herself. This story originally aired earlier this summer. June Loeffler reports
3: Her Hope Haven, Scene 1A, Take 3.
12: The fictional series is set at a recovery home for women with substance use disorder called Her Hope Haven. In this scene, we witness the success of those who have entered and completed the program.
3: These women who are sitting behind me have proved over and over again, we do recover. I give to you the 2021 class of Her Hope Haven.
12: But this pilot episode focuses on those just getting started on their recovery journey. Ashley Ellis is a creative consultant on the project. So it's based on... The treatment centers I've been in and Her Hope Haven is similar to what I have experienced in my recovery. Ellis doesn't have acting, screenwriting, or video experience, but she makes up for it in her lived experience and her willingness to share painful truths with an audience of strangers. I don't care to tell my story. I don't care if it's out there. I think that helps people. Years ago, Ellis met filmmaker Teja Bumgardner who began making a documentary about her recovery process. Opioid use isn't a new subject for the Marshall University film professor. She's dealt with it personally through her father, who died from an overdose last year. But it is the first time she's tackled the issue from a fictional standpoint. Because there's only so much you can do with the documentary. There's something about fiction that can almost get to this other form of truth because you can actually, like, build this world. She builds that world from the stories of Ellis and other women on the set. All the characters in recovery are played by women who have lived through it themselves. There's a script, but actors are encouraged to make their lines their own. Even now, like, a story is written... But with the women who've had these experiences, we go into it and I'm like, change it. The cast is made up of amateur actors who are encouraged to give input on phrasing and costumes based on what feels most natural and believable. Cast member Lauren Brothers went through the same experiences as her character, Rachel.
9: She is a young girl and she just had a baby and she needs to be a better mom. So she's setting back out to, you know,
12: get treatment. Brothers spent a year at a recovery center similar to the one in the film. You know, you get to see how hard it is, that struggle of going and
9: getting help, but also how bad you want it down the side. It's like you are in a war
12: in between yourself. In this scene, Rachel and her mother, Lisa, are daunted to find out how long the recovery program will take.
3: Well, I won't go into all the details right now, But I do want to check in to make sure that you're willing to commit the 9 to 12 months that you're going to be here. 9 to 12 months?
1: Yes. We thought it was 3 months. No,
12: 9 months minimum. In the next scene, they discuss Rachel's toddler, Pearl. I can't be away from Pearl this long. Right? You have to. Brothers isn't a professional actor, but she brings her own process to these emotional scenes.
9: I could picture my baby saying goodbye, so that's how I could relate to that and get, you know, involved in that scene to make it look real.
12: Rachel's internal war with herself over whether she can stay in treatment plays out over the course of the episode, which will air for a Charleston audience this fall. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Loeffler.
0: Ashley Ellis, who was instrumental in writing Her Hope Haven, passed away a few weeks ago. Her mother wrote in her obituary, She fought the battles of substance use disorder, depression, and bipolar disorder. The fight was an everyday battle which would drive her to tears, prayers, and self-medicating. She was very open about her struggles and felt her call in life was to assist others in finding alternatives for treatment. Her goal was to run a women's treatment home where women in addiction could be cared for with live and holistic programs, such as meetings, prayer, mindfulness, journaling, and community. Ashley Ellis was 34 years old. Recovery from addiction is possible. For help, please call the free and confidential treatment referral hotline, 1 800 662 HELP, or visit findtreatment.gov. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, West Swing, Nathan L., and Dog and Gun. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at inappalachia. Visit wvpublic.org/insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
10: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.